at uh, the first part of 1 Kings chapter 11 today. Last Sunday, you may remember, we talked about the last three sections of this saga about Solomon, talked about his accomplishments, his building projects and other things he did for the country, which were quite impressive. And then we talked, uh, anticipated, we talked about his apostasy. Now, to, to be an apostate is to fail to reach a standard, a moral standard, a doctrinal standard, standard a standard as a friend, a uh, standard as a, a boss or an employee or a student or a teacher or a pastor. So we're going to see Solomon's apostasy this week and next week. Uh, and then we'll see the aftermath of Solomon's reign in a couple of weeks. But the fact that his successes did not fulfill him, and in fact, during that period of great overt success, he's starting to drift in some very carnal ways spiritually, caused us to refer not just to the spectacular successes of Solomon, but to the sad successes of Solomon, the spectacular but sad successes of Solomon, and you might say, well, chapter 10 doesn't indicate any of that. But Solomon himself, in another book he writes about this period, Ecclesiastes mentioned, and he's talking about himself, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. And that could be across the board, but it included his building projects. He really liked dealing with issues, solving issues, building things, and bringing them in on time and under budget kind of thing. So I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my works, all these accomplishments, all these buildings that benefited the country. But then I considered all that I had done when I was finished and looked back at it, and behold, and I put in all caps for emphasis, all of it was vanity and a striving after wind. I mean, it's all going to burn. It's all going to go down sooner or later. Cadillacs all end up in junkyards, every single one. They only have a lifetime. So... Last time we finished up and we, we tried to emphasize the overall theme that having it all, like Solomon had it all, isn't enough. It's not going to be enough for Riley or for Brad because having it all isn't all there is, you know, under the sun and beyond the sun, uh, as the scripture would remind us. Now today we go from that as a background to looking at the first part of chapter 11 and we'll see that Solomon's sad choices caused the wisest man in the world one of the world's greatest underachievers. Now, humanly speaking, looks like he's uh, one of the greatest achievers, but ultimately he uh, failed to achieve his his potential quite uh, massively based on some of the things he does that will be described in this chapter. And, you know, that'd be good if Solomon were here today, it'd be good for him to hear this probably. But I think for us, we look at the text and we learn lessons from his bad examples. And I think the one that jumped out at me today was, uh, I'm going to tell Carol Wanzer and I'm going to tell uh, Blanche Britton and Katie Davis and uh, Pam Cox. I want you to be, beware the one key thing that threatens your spiritual vitality as a believer. And of course, uh, if there was one thing, one specific thing, Julie, that we all had to watch out for, it'd be easy. But the one thing that would be your Achilles heel is probably not going to be mine, but there's one area, one core value somewhere in our sin nature that uh, is especially tempting to us and that we're especially good at rationalizing or redefining. And for Solomon, it was trying to please women and be pleased by women. And uh, there's a little bit of that in every man. I'll let you know that. But uh, most of us have other areas. So we'll look at that 
uh, theme today. So, Riley, this applies to you just as much as it did to Solomon. There's probably one area where you're especially weak. And, you know, it's just like in uh, government policy. If you uh, tax something, you get less of it. If you subsidize something, you get more of it. You know, if you feed kind of your area of lust, and lust in the Bible just means a strong desire toward anything, not necessarily toward uh, uh, deviant sexuality, but just a strong desire to be noticed or praised or to be successful or have a lot of money or have a lot of power, whatever your lust pattern is, we all have one. Uh, if you feed it and encourage it, you're going to get more of it. If you starve it, you're going to get less of it. So we're going to be going in that direction as we look at uh, some bad, uh, good lessons from bad examples here in the life of Solomon. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that uh, Ray reminded us that officially this is the the day, worldwide day for prayer for the persecuted church. You know, in the bulletin, um, like on the back, the top of the back page, anybody got a bulletin? I probably should have one, but hey, let, let me see yours there, Wanda. Yeah, any of the top of it. We didn't quite have enough room for all the expected moms, and I, I guess I can take Kristen off now, unless she's pregnant again. Did Did you have you heard? Uh, yeah, the persecuted church worldwide, and uh, you know, having been to North China uh, back in '04, is that possible? Uh, right before they hosted the Olympics, they were on their best behavior. So we got we had actually a lot of freedom for two weeks, although Pam's group got shut down, passing out tracks one day by the police. But um, I've always, for some reason, been especially convicted and concerned about North Korea. And we were actually north of North Korea and in, in northeast China several years ago. But, uh, you know, you see, uh, the, the secular media doesn't cover it, and I don't think they're necessarily trying to, uh, hide it. I just don't think it shows up on their radar screen. Uh, you know, transvestites get, somebody throws a, you know, softball at them. It's a, it's a, you know, national world story. But the fact that we've got Christians, uh, in Syria and Sudan and obviously Afghanistan and Pakistan and North Korea and Indochina, uh, uh, and a lot of places that are targeted, uh, doesn't really come up on our radar screens enough. So as we pray, as is our custom here, for our teachability and for our troops and our peace officers and our firefighters. Let's pray uh, in a concerted way, whoever leads us here, uh, for the persecuted church, for them to hang in there. And I've, I've heard this so many times, I'm sure it's true, Ken, but uh, people who interact with groups in persecuted areas tell us, well, of course, we should pray for our brethren there, but what they tell us is uh, that... Uh, they are praying for us <laughs> because you know we've had so much affluence and so much uh, freedom, which which isn't set in concrete. There may be radical changes in how we uh, redefine the First Amendment from uh, freedom of religion, which is what the founding fathers intended, according to the Federalist Papers, in in detail, uh, to freedom of worship. Freedom of worship is the definition of the First Amendment that says. Derek and Brad and Meg can get together at Tango Bible Fellowship on Sunday and say anything they want to about God and truth and right and wrong, and, and you got the freedom to to worship like that. But don't you take it out to the public square because that's hate speech and that's intolerant and that kind of thing. And if you read the document, uh, you know the very first amendment added to make sure that all the assumptions were understood was freedom of not just freedom of press. Freedom of speech, uh, freedom of speech, 
freedom of religion was the first part of the First Amendment. That was speech and also uh, press, of course. But And it, it doesn't put any strictures on people of faith. I mean, the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It's limiting what the government can do to us. It's saying the government can't make any one denomination, the state church, nor tell preachers what to preach, much less that you are able to live it out in the in the culture and uh, and share it and uh, and that kind of thing. So uh, who knows? We'll see what happens. But uh, with that cheery note, I'm going to look for someone I can depend on. Uh, I think David Demerson's up to the task. Uh, pray for our teachability, troops, peace officers, firefighters, and then uh, let's uh, pray for God to empower and encourage and protect and defend uh, our persecuted brethren that are literally in the crosshairs as government policy overtly in many places in the world. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Derek. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you know, I was kind of a conscientious objector against Pastor Appreciation Day when I first invented it right after I became a full-time professional Christian 30-something years ago. And after taking, uh, you know, the hits and the bumps and the grinds, I thought, you know, if they're going to pick one day to say something nice about me, I'll take it. So uh, it's all good. Uh, yeah, we're going to break this large section into two smaller pieces. Uh, we're going to look at Solomon's sad choices caused the wisest man in the world to become one of the world's ultimate underachievers. Now look at the sad part of that. Speaking of sad, these are pretty sad, but we're going to go through them anyway. Uh, chuckle or scratch your head, your choice. Where was Solomon's temple located? On the side of his head. Right. At what time of day was Adam created? Eh, just a little before Eve. I, I knew I'd get that reaction. That's, that's fine. Uh, why was Abraham considered very smart? Because he knew a lot. Capital L. You know, his nephew, Lot. He knew a lot. There's a few more. Hold on. Uh, what was Boaz like before he got married? He was ruthless. Didn't have Ruth. Why did Moses cross the Red Sea? Yeah, to get the other side. Yeah, that's right. So there's some s- smart guy in the back, in the front row there. The guys that's on the front row, you got to watch out for. Um, why did Noah want to throw the chickens off the ark? Because they used fowl. And for those listening on the World Wide Web, that's uh, F-O-W-L. They use fowl language. Okay. Uh, look at uh, the first part of this saga we're going to see in verses 1 through 8, Solomon's sad choices led to him drifting away from close fellowship with God. And there's actually two root causes and a ruinous effect here. Look at verses 1 and 2. I'm looking at the New American Standard Bible. Now, King Solomon, despite all of his many accomplishments, building the temple, having two direct interactions with God himself. Now, King Solomon loved many Foreign women, and the Hebrew text actually has um, the foreign first. Um, these are people who aren't just different eth- ethnically. These are different worldviews, different conceptions of God that they import into Israel, unvetted, as it were. The King Solomon loved many foreign women, 
along with the daughter of Pharaoh. She's the first of many that goes back to the beginning of the story. And this includes Moabite women, Ammonite women, Edomite women, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Now, this is not an anti-racial uh, or ethnic comment. They're talking about the theology here. Uh, it's very interesting that one of the don't list of types of people who are allowed, according to the Old Testament law, to be functioning in the community of the Jews were Moabites. But you guys know that, you know, before he got married, uh, Boaz was ruthless. And when he got married, he was m- marrying a Moabite. But these uh, warnings against uh, Moabites and Ammonites and Edomites are not talking about ethnicity. They're talking about theology. There's no problem with Boaz marrying Ruth, even though she's ethnically a Moabite, because she became a proselyte and a believer in the true God. The problem is when you marry somebody who's openly uh, espousing um, uh, falsehood, will not give up their falsehood, and are going to be oppressing you as the pastor chief executive of the nation that's supposed to be focusing exclusively on Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to subsidize worship centers for them and their gods. That's the problem. So uh, realize this is not talking about ethnicity. It's talking about theology. These folks are from the nations concerning which the Lord had said way back through Moses and repeated through many of the prophets, you shall not associate with them. You shall not have close fellowship with them because they're going to influence you to go the wrong way to compromise your faith. Neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after other gods. And then it says, Solomon held fast to these in love. You'd be amazed at how people who can't look at the x-ray, the Hebrew text, will get very sentimental. And they'll say, well, yeah, we're going to find out in verse 3 he had 700 real wives, and 300 lower-level wives with lower inheritance rights and lower rights for the kids they produce. But he held fast to these in love. And John Lennon himself, the great theologian, said, all you need is love. So what could be the problem? Well, um, I don't think he had the time or energy to hold fast all those folks in love very often, individually. But a better translation is, he loved to hold fast to these. This is lust, not love, okay? Uh, I'm not, you cannot have 1,000 best friends. You can't. You can't have 1,000 best friends. You can't have five best friends. Really, you've only got one best friend, then a couple others that are pretty close. This guy, uh, he's just got 999 too many women in his life. That's the problem. You know, and that's a full-time job, just keeping track of that. So he loved holding fast to these. I guess he did, you know. So, you know, this is the first root cause of the problem. Uh, now, he had specifically been warned, both in chapter 3 and chapter 9, when God is interacting with him personally to beware this kind of thing. But he didn't even need that. I mean, you go back to Deuteronomy, and this is one of the key themes. You're going to go into the land that was promised you. You're going to not allow the Canaanites who are worshiping their children on altars to continue to control that. You want to get those out. Of course, if they want to come into the camp as proselytes, they're welcome. Otherwise, do not allow them to influence you. Don't allow yourself to compromise your faith because of their uh, 
beliefs about their pagan gods. Uh, and so he should have known that. You know, rightly, I like to say, Joe, there are some things in the Bible hard to understand. And there really are. And, you know, Second uh, Peter says that. But the main things in the Bible are plain things that get repeated a lot. All of us have fallen short of God's standard. We can't fix it ourselves. So God came down from heaven in the person of Jesus to pay the sin debt we owe him in our place. And through faith in his work, not us trying to work for him, he doesn't say at the end of the cross, I've done my part, now good luck with yours. What does he say at the end of the cross, James? It's on your arm there. Paid in full, telestai, right? So, uh, yeah, uh, those kind of things are clear. That's called the gospel. For Israel, they were living as a special nation anticipating the coming of the Messiah, uh, put under the constitution of the Mosaic, Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. They were flat told not to interact with in any way that would allow them to be influenced by the false, bizarre, uh, perverted, murderous theological concepts of the ancient Near East that surrounded them. They're in the incubator of all this overt, horrific kind of stuff. They're doing all kinds of horrible sexual things to women and killing their kids on the altar. Every other one had to be sacrificed to make sure you'd get good crops and things like that. And God said, don't have anything to do with that. Don't legitimize it in any way. Solomon marries these people and pays for them to worship these gods in Israel in the shadow of the temple. This is bad stuff. So he should have known better, but he didn't. Okay, This is no no question about it. He knew what he was doing here. That's root cause one. Root cause two. He's weak in spiritually because of his specific obsession, his lust pattern, to impress the opposite sex. And he's got, as I said, 999 uh, too many women he's trying to impress, right? He had 700 wives, uh, princes, full-fledged wives, and then in that system, in the ancient Near East, not in the Old Testament, there was a lower level of being a wife with less privileges. They're called concubines. And his wives, over a period of time, turned his heart away. He didn't just uh, permit them to worship their gods. He starts participating with his heart to worship Molech, who's the god that emphasizes human sacrifice. For it came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the father, uh, the heart of David his father had been. Uh, lots of women, lots of baggage, uh, and he loved clinging to these women, and he ends up becoming an idol worshiper. Uh, now, let's talk about the whole dynamic beyond Solomon's issues of the fact you see some of the major people in the Old Testament with multiple wives. And you guys already know the principle. Much of historical biblical literature is descriptive, but not necessarily prescriptive. Not everything that's recorded is a prescription for Carol to apply. It's just a description of what Abraham did or said or how he lived. It's not necessarily saying everybody should follow that example. you got to evaluate the examples based on the didactic, direct statements of Scripture. So when you think about the fact that people like David and Abraham and Jacob had multiple wives, what do you do with that? Okay, uh, There's this television show uh, called Sister Wives. We have the fundamentalist Mormons with the guy Cody, the cool polygamist who's got Four or five wives or six, I'm forgetting these guys. Got more than more than one. But uh, here's what I'd say in a nutshell. Yeah, Brad, nutshell. It's going to be a coconut shell again, right, Brad? 
Now, I'm going to try to make it a less than a coconut shell. Number one, fact of the matter is, Genesis 2.25, uh, this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother, it's for grown-ups, if you've got to depend on mommy and daddy to take care of you, you're not old enough to get married yet. Cleave to his wife, that's talking about entering into a covenant, that's what you do at a wedding ceremony, and then the two shall become one flesh. That's the pattern, one man, one woman, boom, not Adam, Eve, Ava, Bambi, the aerobics instructor, you know. It's not consistent. Polygamy is not, never was consistent with God's standard for marriage generally. And for Jewish kings specifically, and Moses several times said, once we get out of Egypt, once we establish the theocracy in the land, our kings are not supposed to multiply wives, which of course meant most of them multiplied wives, you know. But uh, that was just descript- descriptive literature, not designed to be prescriptions for us. Now here's the problem. Polygamy in the ancient Near East, A-N-E is ancient Near East, had pragmatic benefits generally and became pretty much tolerated because a lot of people did it. There were benefits. The more wives you had, the more kids you had, the more you had to work in the fields if you're an average person. And for big shots like kings, lots of wives in a harem was a status symbol. And it had geopolitical benefits because, as we've said, if you marry Pharaoh's daughter, there's less chance Pharaoh is going to sneak attack you in your capital and possibly kill his daughter. So there are a lot of benefits. But even though David and some of these other kings did this, Solomon's doing it on steroids. He's doing it to a mega extreme, and it's not good. Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 19 of Matthew specifically said, says from the very beginning, the pattern is one man, one woman. So it's talking about heterosexual marriage, talking about one person on each one of the sides, you know, one man, one woman, one husband, one wife, uh, that kind of thing. And it's interesting, as bad as the Roman culture was in the New Testament, not even the Romans thought polygamy was a good idea. Now, some all those guys had mistresses, but they didn't openly have more than one wife at a time. So uh, this was something you see in the Old Testament, but it was never good. And James is a Bible scholar, and he'll, he'll tell you, if you look at every single case where somebody has multiple wives in the Old Testament, to the extent we have much information about them, they have very dysfunctional families. You never have a decent situation when you get more than one wife. It's hard enough to please one. How are you going to please two? It's twice as hard. In fact, it's probably like having multiple babies. When you get your first baby, you realize how hard it is to get from here to Walmart. When you get the second one, it's ten times harder. It's not twice as harder. It's it goes up exponentially. Same thing if you multiply wives. Okay, I heard that. I did. I don't know that for sure, but yeah. So notice you know, Solomon is is obviously got this tendency to want to impress and cling to a lot of different kinds of women. And uh, in the same passage where he talks about building things, ultimately didn't satisfy him. He says the same thing about this uh, out of bounds kind of sensuality. I said to myself, come now, I'll test you, talking to himself, with pleasure. And I capitalize that because I think that's almost held up like a proper noun in that context. So enjoy yourself. And so he did. You know, he had 1,000 women to deal with. With the pleasure, and he says, with the pleasures of many men, concubines, um, with the pleasures of men, many concubines, and behold, this too was futility. Eventually you realize you built, you've been built for something much bigger than anything that a physical experience can gratify, okay? So we're seeing sad choices, uh, root causes, and now look at verses 5 through 8, the ruinous effect, and we, we read this, 
4, because of all the above, Solomon went after Ashtoreth. She's the goddess of fertility of the Canaanites, the goddess of the Sidonians. And after Milcom, the detestable gods of the Ammonites, Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, all caps means the God of salvation, uh, and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. David had issues, some serious sin issues, but he never considered worshiping false gods. He never incorporated that uh, organically into the structure of Israel. Then, and this is kind of the climax of the debauchery, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh with government money. They didn't have separation of church and uh, state back then. Which I'm not very much for, by the way. Even uh, if you notice, Jefferson wrote that to the Danbury Baptist talking about don't worry about the government trying to tell you what to preach. Uh, but I don't want, I'm not voting for, I'm not voting for American pastor next Tuesday. And I don't really want the government to tell me what I can or can't preach or what I can't believe and live out even at Cameron University or at the post office or anything else like that. We'll see if that changes. But at that point, we make, we make choices. And what do you do? You get a gun and shoot somebody? No, I think uh, we we would uh, non-violent, respectful, civil disobedience, and as as the apostles do in the first chapters of Acts, you know, they're uh, what Peter and John are arrested for preaching the gospel, and the the government basically says, "Don't do that anymore," and they basically say, "Sorry, we're going to have to do it." And so, well, we'll see. So they do it. They get arrest them again. They arrest them a third time, and they say, "Hey, we thought we told you not to do that," and they said, "You know." Whether we should obey you or God, you, you decide. But we'd rather obey God than man. You know, I think the principle is always submit to human government until or unless it's a direct sin to obey a human government, and then you, you know, respectfully say, "No, sir, I can't shoot that Jew because he's a Jew." You know, which is what German soldiers should have said. It would have been hard to say it. Uh, I'm not saying when they're going to torture you to death, you say it, but that's what you do. You know, as a Christian. So we'll see. Um, you know, I, I remember as a teacher at uh, Jordan Evangelical Theological Seminary in Amman, three different times I got to teach there. What a wonderful opportunity, privilege. Uh, a lot of people that I taught there are probably dead now because of where they came from. I mean, I had a guy named Nabil who passed at a church in Baghdad. He drove like a 47 Chevy from Baghdad to Amman to take the class I was teaching. Not about me, but he needed this particular class. I happened to be the one teaching it. And I thought... I wouldn't, I wouldn't drive me and Ken from here to the Simmons Center in that vehicle. I think, you know, my life will blow up, you know. And he's driving it from Baghdad, going around bombs to get to Oman and go back. Uh, whether he's still alive, I don't know. But the one that really, and a lot of people come to mind when I think about that, that are from Syria. I knew a lot of Syrians at, uh, at Jets that were students, just wonderful people, incredible people, man. Can't believe how wonderful these people are. And, and you know, they got to return home. Uh, they may well have uh, perished. But the one that really st- I remember was a guy who was like, looked like an NBA basketball player. He was like 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, almost as tall as your uh, son-in-law, their big boy, you know, next week, uh, Phil. But his name was Toot Kong. That was his name. He was from Sudan, which, as you know, there's been a big civil war with some militant Muslims killing all the Christians. Uh, and... Uh, he was the president of a Bible college um, in, in Sudan, and uh, very dangerous. And his friends were telling me about his situation. He said he really shouldn't go back, but he's going to get his degree here and then go right back. And some people, you know, are called to do that. And so, um, 
It's interesting. So we live in, in interesting times, don't we? Couldn't make it up. But anyway, the ruinous effect of all this was Solomon made some bad choices. I want you to see the cause-effect relationship. The bottom line is he's not just putting up with it. He's participating in it. He built a high place. He built the temple for Yahweh, folks, just a few years ago. Before this, now he's building a high place for Chemosh, and he's the god of human sacrifice, uh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem. What's the mountain east of Jerusalem? You know, don't you? It's where Christ ascended from. It's the place Christ will return to. It's called the Mount of Olives. On the Mount of Olives, in the shadow of the temple, he's building, with government expense, a high place to sacrifice human beings to the god Chemosh. Uh, and Moab's right across the way there, so he's, trying, he's probably trying to make points with them politically. Um, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives. He had no discrimination. Whatever pagan god you want to worship, I'll worship him with you. And maybe, you know, you'll be friendlier tomorrow night with me. Who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So Solomon's gone from putting up with it to participating in it. And it's not a good thing. right? Now, if you look at your handout, we break down this chapter into two parts. Solomon's sad choices led him to drift from close fellowship with God and to receive, verses 9 through 43, divine discipline from God. But we're just going to look at the first part of uh, the divine discipline today, and we'll do the rest next week, Lord willing. So let's look at verses 9 through 13 and see what is said there. Now, an ach, that's a connective in Hebrew, that means after an indefinite period of time. Uh, the Lord, the God of his salvation, the God who had spoken to him twice directly um, and warned him about this thing, plus he's got the scriptures, was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice in chapter 3 and chapter 9. And it commanded him concerning this very thing. They should not go after other gods. What's the first commandment, man? Got ten of them, right? What's the first commandment? No other gods. Why would God want to, Anthony, why would God want to limit our ability to worship all the wonderful false gods of the world? Look at Psalm uh, 96. I was telling James recently, when I was younger and stupider, I used to make fun of little old people that used their Bible as a file cabinet. And now I is one. I'm just, my Bible's a file cabinet, man. Yeah, Psalm 96, verse 4. And Bryce, watch this. Don't look at any verse but verse 4. Watch this. What does this mean? For great is the Lord, and that's the all caps L-O-R-D, meaning the God of salvation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who's going to send Jesus. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all lowercase g gods. That sounds like the psalmist is saying, they're out there. There are other gods out there, but the only one Stephanie is supposed to worship is, is Yahweh, is God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Great is the Lord, great to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Now, Ron knows the difference, and he knows that most Bible questions, most Bible questions, Nancy, are answered in the next verse. So when you ask yourself, oh my gosh, is he 
legitimatizing, affirming the existence of these other gods we're not supposed to recognize, we're not supposed to worship. No. Verse 5, which comes right after verse 4, and this is the one we're wondering about, he's to be feared above all gods? He's just another god? He's just better than the other gods? No. Verse 5, 4, that's key in, in Hebrew, that's uh, because all the gods of the people are what? They're not real. Okay? They're figments of imagination. And they'll teach you all kinds of bizarre stuff related to that. Great is the Lord. Great be praised. He's to be feared by all the other gods because all the other gods don't exist. What's the first commandment of the ten? No other gods before me because I don't want you to believe in superstition and nonsense and, and falsity and fiction. I want you to believe in the real thing. So, go back to the first Kings 11. So, the Lord's angry. And uh, anthropomorphism, he's hurt. He doesn't like it when his children are spitting in his face, uh, you know, kicking him in the shins. Uh, one great thing about uh, about Cooper and Peter is I got him. I got him totally snowed, you know. And if you think I've got him fooled, that grandma really hasn't fooled. Uh, yesterday, I'm not sure how this came up. I, I lost my temper about something. That uh, I think he spilled water in the tent we set up in the living room. Don't come to our house for the next week. It looks like a bomb went off. It will take us at least a week and probably a contractor to get the house back in shape. But anyway, uh, Grandma thought it was a good idea for us to set this tent up in the living room. It's actually bigger than our living room. So Friday night when we brought him home, of course, Papa is setting up the tent, which tells you something. You know, she could have done it in five minutes. It took me fifty-five. Anyway, get the tent set up. Yesterday. Uh, during some especially trying moment in the football game I'm trying to watch, uh, they decide they're going to eat lunch, a late lunch or a snack. They have a lot of snacks uh, in the tent, which is in front of the TV set, in the living room. And, uh, of course, Cooper's the oldest one. He's got a secure cup that can't spill. Peter, somebody thought it was a good idea to give him a cup that had, could spill easily. So he spills it a couple of times. On the third or fourth time, I got excited, plus I... I was kind of mad at one of our guys who dropped a pass, and so they're looking at Grandma like, "What's he mad about?" You know. And so, in the aftermath of that, the boys kind of sat me down and said, "You know, Grandma never gets mad. Grandma never yells like that, Papa. She never gets mad at anything or anyone." And I thought, "Who are they talking about?" Um, and I kind of looked at her, and I looked at Grandma. And Grandma goes, "Yes, Cooper." Grandma only gets mad at Papa. <laughs> That's what happened. So, now if I had 999 other wives, I could, you know, get some sympathy from one of them, probably. But that's not going to happen with her. So anyway, that's a true story. Uh, so the Lord said to Solomon, "Because you have done this, this isn't one little thing. He didn't really mean it. This is a definite, you know, division of his heart." And he's going to, you know, go to the temple on the Sabbath and then go to this altar, uh, to worship Chemosh on a Monday to make points with his wife and he actually getting into it, you know, and, and getting involved in it. The Lord said to Solomon, because you've done this, you've not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded you. And, you know, that covenant refers to the Mosaic covenant, to Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 17, talking about the kings are not supposed to multiply wives, not supposed to get wealthy, and certainly not supposed to worship other gods or put up with it. Uh, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I'm not going to do it during your lifetime, during your 
days for the sake of your father David, about tear it out of the hand of your son, uh, whose name is Rehoboam. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe in addition to his tribe, which is Benjamin, I mean Judah. Uh, there's going to be one tribe added to that, Benjamin. So we're going to have ten tribes to the north, to the to the south. And the point is, this very prosperous, stable, at the zenith of its power and influence nation, as soon as Solomon dies, is going to go into civil war mode with ten tribes to the north, uh, forming a separate nation called Israel, and the uh, two tribes of the south called Judah, uh, still under uh, David Solomonic uh, dynasty leaders all the way until the destruction of the temple. And that's important for a couple of reasons. But the point is, I'm not going to do it during your lifetime, but as soon as you're gone, there's going to be a major deconstruction of the of the kingdom as it's been set up. But you'll continue, at least that dynasty I promise to bigger people than you will continue as an unconditional promise. I won't do it in your days for the sake of David, but I will tear it. I had a hand of your son, however, I will not tear uh, away all of the kingdom, but I will give one additional tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Now next week, Lord willing, we'll come back and we'll look at internal and external threats that immediately arise leading toward this uh, civil war that will happen after he dies. We'll talk about how that relates to us today. But let me finish this way. I think when you look at Solomon, he's got a lot of wonderful characteristics, and he is incredibly wise, thanks to the grace of God, but uh, he has one kind of spiritual Achilles heel, and I think we all do. You know, God doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on us when we accept Christ, right? We're still capable of sinning. The cool thing is, as a believer, you're although you're able to sin, you're also able not to sin now, as you abide in Christ empowered by the Spirit. They won't push you towards sin, but we can co-opt that, and we often do. So I like to try to be interesting and compelling, so I'm saying beware the one key thing, and you're thinking we've all got one thing we've got to do, one button we can push and we'll avoid this. I don't think so. Solomon, like all believers, have to deal with certain specific areas of sin, but exactly the kind of areas that tend to tempt me may not be the same areas that tempt Ken or, or Mike. And I think people don't see this. I can remember... One thing I learned from my Baptist upbringing was a focus on this verse. I think one of our ministers must have preached it a lot or talked a lot about it. But uh, this has always been a very important statement for me. Uh, talks about laying aside every encumbrance. Uh, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses of previous generations of Christians that kind of show us the, the way uh, to hang in there and continue to trust and obey, uh, let's lay aside every encumbrance and, that means including, the sin, the specific sin, which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance. I bet Ken and Carol can relate to that. They're they're distance runners. Run with endurance. The race set before us. Uh, when I used to run some distance, you know, when you're running uphill into the wind some days in Oklahoma, you, you, your body doesn't feel like you're making any progress at all, and it's very discouraging when you got another three miles to go. But I always looked at one crack or one tree or one telephone pole up there, and, you know, after a couple of seconds, you eventually pass that. You realize, yeah, it doesn't feel like I'm getting anywhere into the wind uphill, but I know I am. So I think it's important to kind of hang in there and just keep moving. Fixing our eyes on the finish line, as it were. Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy set before him, he wasn't happy. Happiness and joy aren't the same thing. You've heard that before. Endured the cross, despising the shame, and now has the highest place in the universe. 
But look at what I want to emphasize here in that passage. See that yellow part there? He talks about as we run with endurance the good Christian race, we need to lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us, the sin pattern, the area that of sin and temptation we're especially susceptible to, we especially seem to enjoy, kind of play with, kind of kind of hold it off to the side, but play with it. It's easy for uh, us to justify that and whatever it is. And it's going to be one one area in our life that we're especially susceptible to. And you've got to figure out what that is. I can't tell you which one that is. Now, some of you have known you long enough, I could probably tell you, but you don't want me to tell you. It's not really my job. I think the Holy Spirit will help you know that. The good thing is, if you're married, your spouse can tell you, for sure, you know. And, you know, I was thinking about this. You know, at, at some levels, I can become, I'm so smug because I can be so flexible on a lot of stuff. You can't be a pastor for 30-something years in one place for 28 years and not be flexible on a lot of stuff. And I know some people think, he's obsessive about setting up the chairs right. Uh, you know what? I just wanted to look decent, you know, that's it. And I'm up here anyway, so I don't mind doing it. That's the end of, I mean, that's it. You know, if you want to do it forever, please do. You can do it. Now, if you set it up in a pyramid or, you know, a swastika, I'm not going to like that. Just so you'll know, you know. They're upside down in a big circle or something, maybe not. If we have a square dance, that'd be good. But, uh, I guess I am obsessive about stuff like that. But anyway, uh, yeah, I tend to, I tend to really kind of self-congratulate myself for being very flexible on a lot of non-essential things and, and really pretty courteous. And then I hit some areas, uh, like little kids spilling water in the living room when I'm trying to watch a football game. It's really important. And I realized I'm not really that flexible. I'm not really all that considerate. You know, there are certain things, certain areas that, man, you cross that line and I go into DEFCON 4, you know, and which is like overkill. So this has been really tempting. I, I found out I've got like 15 areas this week because I've had all week to think about this. But I think all of us probably have one major area where we're especially um, susceptible to rationalizing or redefining stuff we know in our heart of hearts really isn't where it should be. So rather than just warning you, I'm going to give you a short, uh, just a couple of minutes we could preach this. You've heard me talk about this. But I think three uh, steps, Bryce, that can help you overcome whatever your area of weakness is, is number one, you got to own it. You can't blame it on your mom, your pastor, President Obama. Uh, you can't rationalize redefining it. you got to look at it and admit, yeah, whatever that area is, however it's been playing out in my life, uh, it's my fault. If you need some biblical encouragement for that, First John 1, 5 through 2, 2 is all over. If you say you haven't sinned, you're lying to yourself. If you say you can't sin, you're lying to yourself. Some Christians decide they get to the point where they can't sin anymore, they don't sin anymore. That ain't it. That doesn't work that way in this world. We're going to get to a place where we can't sin, but we're not there now. you got to own it. Stop blaming other people for your issues. Number two, you've got to confess it. First uh, John 1, 9, you know, Jesus washing the feet of these guys who have taken the bath of salvation. If we confess our sins, say homo ago, which is the Greek word for confess, just means homo means same, legeo means to say. Say the same thing about it God does. Stop rationalizing it. I blew it. I was wrong, Father. I shouldn't have done that. To the extent you need to apologize to somebody else or that do restitution to somebody else after you make it straight with the Lord, go do it. But quite often that's not even necessary. You just need to recognize it, confess it, and stop uh, kind of ignoring it, rationalizing it, or putting up with it. And then I think it's important to replace it. Now, ultimately, we replace sin patterns with Christ, okay? 
Abiding in Christ is the engine of the spiritual life. We've trusted Him to save us, and we abide in Christ when we recognize and respond from the heart to the One who has saved us, who's our best friend, our Lord, our God, our Sovereign. And that's why First John says, if you're abiding in Christ, you can't sin. You can't be responding from the heart to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and lusting, lying, cheating, uh, getting your feelings hurt when you really shouldn't, or getting mad, or whatever you're doing to people, or lying, cheating, and stealing. You can't do that and be abiding in Christ at the same time. It's not organically, spiritually possible. So I think that's what you replace it with. But I also think that whatever your patterns are, rather than as you abide in Christ, ask Him to help you do the opposite. Uh, there are a lot of passages like this, but Ephesians 4 is pretty cool because it has this long list of things not to do. But rather than just saying, Anthony, don't do it, it says, stop lying, speak the truth in love. Guess what? If you're speaking the truth in love to Bonnie, you're not lying. If you're speaking the truth in love to your beloved Philosophy 2713 teacher on Tuesday nights at our beloved Cameron University, you're not lying. You know, So I think that's very helpful. And if I say, don't think of the number 13, don't think of the number 13, don't think of the number 13! What's the only number everybody's thinking about? You're all thinking of 13, right? If I say, don't think of 13, think of 25, now double it, now double that, you're thinking about 100, right? So I think that is a kind of a practical thing I use uh, that helps me. And you see this in Ephesians 4. Stop stealing. There are people in the church that shoplift or take stuff that, you know, they get sticky fingers. He says, don't steal Work and share. Get a job. You know, provide for yourself. You want a stapler? Don't steal a stapler. You can get money. Go to Walmart and buy a stapler. Now, some of you can't go to Walmart without stealing staplers, so you need to get somebody like Wanda and, and uh, Dwight to take you. They'll keep an eye on you. You won't let, you won't let them steal staplers, right? Uh, uh, she went there, but anyway. Uh, but I always thought that was pretty cool. Instead, work and share, which means if you get a job, you're going to be too tired to steal. Plus, you ought to have enough money. You ought to use your money wisely enough. You've got enough extra money rather than stealing from people. You ought to give to people who have needs. Stop tearing each other down. Instead, build one another up. If I'm building Wanda up, I'm not tearing her down. That doesn't mean I should lie to her about uh, issues that might come up. But I sure shouldn't be comparing an area of strength for me that's an area of weakness for her and talking to Steve about how messed up she is. That's tearing her down. Unless she hears about it or not. And he says, stop bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. And instead, be kind to one another. Start praying for people. It's hard to gossip and slander uh, about them, you know. Uh, and you're looking for the best for them. And, it, you know, we just don't, we don't, we don't do that when we're praying. So I think maybe just being more prayerful would be a good way to approach that. Okay. So, uh, it's interesting. Uh, we'll continue this theme next time. But we're going to learn a good lesson from some bad uh, examples from Solomon. But we're going to stress uh, the fact that uh, although he doesn't stop being a son of God and doesn't uh, negate all of his accomplishments and the blessings he's brought to God's people, uh, this air of weakness is left to, to manifest and metastasize, causes big problems. And uh, we don't want to see that in our church or ourselves, do we? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to be able to see. Give us a spiritual x-ray machine. I mean, it's so easy for me to see faults in other people. It's so hard for me to see them honestly in myself. And I think we've all got that issue. It's part of our fallen nature, which uh, uh, 
is uh, not removed by regeneration. So we've still got a tendency to be very selfish and sinful and short-sighted. So uh, we want to give you uh, permission, not that you need it, but uh, we give you full permission to convict us and show us as individuals and as a church areas where we're just weak or short-sighted or maybe even sinful so that we can isolate those things and replace them with the good. And as we go through that process, help us to only key more strongly on Jesus Christ, our Savior, fixing our eyes on Him, even as we lay aside the sin, whatever it might be, that easily trips us up. And that will be different for each one of us. But help us to see and learn lessons from this in ways that can bear fruit for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.